Welcome to Love Unpacked, a podcast based on the book Love Unpacked. I'm your host, Andy Franklin. Join me on a journey to unpack our stories, confront our past, and find our way to unconditional love. Happy Friday, everybody. It has been a long but good week for the most part over here. There's a lot going on in my world right now. Lots going on with my kids in school. Just life. Life in general, but, you know, making the best of it. I am really excited for this next little phase of our reading because it's a nice break from the really traumatic stuff and it's more it's it's not like it's easy stuff necessarily but it's definitely not the same caliber <laughs> as some of the things that we've been dealing with and some of the things that we will get into later so let's enjoy this rest <laughs> if you will from the really hard chapters um today we are talking about rejection and I enjoy I enjoy this conversation because I think that it's something that most of us do. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts, to hear your experiences. So if you want to reach out on social media or send me an email at hello at andyfranklin.com, I would love to hear from you. I just truly believe that life is a little bit easier and richer when we are able to come together and talk about common issues. So... Here's to working through our bullshit together, and I hope that you enjoy this episode. Chapter 6. Rejection. A Girlfriend's Guide to Never Being Too Much. I don't want anyone who doesn't want me. Oprah Winfrey. It was September in 2006, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and my girlfriend Jess invited me to the Susan G. Komen Walkathon at the Rose Bowl with her and her family, who attended every year. I didn't know too much about it, other than her mom was a survivor, and Jess said they played movies on giant screens and had 24-hour snack bars. I always wanted to attend a charity walk, and this one seemed especially cool since it was an overnight event so I jumped at the opportunity to join my friend. I asked my mom to borrow 20 bucks to cover snacks since I was 18 and still getting my footing at this whole managing your money game and had managed to already blow through my last paycheck. After a lecture about how I needed to be better with my finances, my mom shelled over the dough and Jess and I hopped in my used 2001 white convertible Sebring, top down, blasting Ashley Simpson's Piece of Me album, as we headed west on the 210 freeway toward Pasadena. It was around 4 p.m., and we'd just hit the early evening pileup. So we were dancing in our seats and belting out all the words to Ashley's jams as we sat, stranded behind a slew of vehicles. Up ahead, I saw a middle-aged man dressed in all black on the side of the freeway. He stood tall, with an honest Abe-style top hat gracing his head, which I found incredibly amusing. I began to laugh and point him out to my friend, but when I gestured my hand in his direction, he was gone. There was no off-ramp nearby, and the walls themselves must have been about 20 feet high, so the idea of him climbing over was frankly impossible. 
A chill crept up my spine, and I couldn't help but think whatever I just saw wasn't human. At least not anymore. I wondered if it was a warning, a bad omen, or a sign of terrible things to come. As a result, my stomach was in knots over it for the rest of the evening. To top it off, my boyfriend Nick stopped returning my texts around 6 p.m. that evening, shortly after he arrived at his friend Mike's house party. My mom believed that Nick was my first love. He was two years older than me, with bold Italian features and a contagious smile that scaled his cheeks like a mountaineer on Everest. Even though he was only about a foot or so taller than I was, there was something about that smile and his deep-set eyes that drew me closer. Or maybe it was the fact that my friend liked him first. My best friend at the time, Beverly, brought me into her church to help with the youth group she led, and Nick was a leader there as well. Bev had a major crush on him, which she vocalized to me before I put a face to the name. I know how that sounds, and you're right to think I was an asshole for moving in on my friend's turf. I knew the lay of the land, the laws of friendship that state in permanent ink, do not reach for someone else's crush. Still, the moment our eyes locked, I knew I needed him to be mine. I tried to ignore the siren call for the sake of my friendship, but I was sailing on a direct course to Nick and him to me. To make matters worse, he liked to hang out with Beverly's older brother and go shoot airsoft guns in an old abandoned apartment complex. Occasionally, Bev started tagging along and bringing me with her. The more time I spent around him, the harder it became to control my urges. I know I should have stepped out of the ring, or at least been honest with my friend about what I was feeling, but I did neither of those noble, mature acts. Instead, I secretly pined for my friend's crush and worked overtime to get conversations in with him without giving myself away as a law-breaking citizen of friendship. I justified my betrayal toward my friend, telling myself if he liked her back, then he would have made a move already, seeing as they had known one another for a while. Why should we both have to miss out on this great guy? It's not my fault they don't click, and he and I do. I know, guys, I know. Grab your torch and pitchforks. In a way, I deserved everything that was coming to me. Karma, if you will, for discarding Bev's feelings when I should have been upfront with her. But this story is far from over yet. One night, after a busy hour of leading junior high fellowship, I hopped into my Sebring to head home, and by chance, Nick and I ended up side-by-side in our cars, stopped at a red light. I don't know what kind of succubus possessed me at that moment, but I gestured for him to roll his window down and then declared we needed to exchange numbers and hang out. I'd never been this bold with a guy before in my life, but I could tell that Nick was a little on the dense side. Since he hadn't been picking up on my hints, but I could tell he was interested, I decided to go for it. We exchanged numbers and decided to meet up at In-N-Out to talk, just as friends. For Nick, our meetup was meant to be two like-minded, opposite-sex young adults conversing about life. But to me, it was a date. While Nick was on this one-sided date with me, we ended up on the topic of what we seek in a significant other. 
My heart raced as Nick grew silent and studied my eyes like they were going to be on a test later. At that moment, I sent a prayer up to God. If I'm supposed to be with him, please send me a sign. I felt a droplet of water on my cheek, right on cue. Our long gaze broke as we both surveyed the evening sky. It was kissing our skin. The rain started slow, but picked up speed, and before we knew it, we were drenched in its downpour. There we sat, two stunned and soaked people on the cusp of something new. When Nick's eyes revisited mine, he looked as though he'd just seen a ghost. What? I asked coyly. But Nick couldn't answer me. Instead, he kept his eyes locked to mine and grinned with that massive, pure smile. And I wondered if maybe he'd prayed the same wish as me in that silence. As he'd tell me later, it turned out he had. From then on, we were inseparable. We spent the summer together, exclusively as boyfriend and girlfriend, watching Dodgers baseball on his parents' patio in the harsh season heat and making out in his bedroom until we needed a water break. I cheered from the bleachers at all of his softball games and watched with pride as he stole the show every time. We did family dinners and beach trips, and at night he'd play his guitar while I sang along to the tune. It was everything I always dreamed of, and I didn't even care when my grandma told me he was too short for me. Andy, if you're taller than him in heels, then he's too short for you. Okay, you five-foot-even old lady, whatever you say. Nick wasn't a virgin, but he made the decision to be born again, which is fancy Christian slang for pretending you've never had sex. In turn, he never pressured me for anything. We never went all the way, but we did pretty much everything else. It was refreshing to be with someone who seemed more interested in who I was than what I could do for them. But not everything was sunshine and Dodger dogs for us. Nick's parents were very Italian, and they'd adopted a European mindset toward their children and alcohol. Drinking in moderation was no big deal in their house. In fact, it was almost encouraged as a rite of passage. Before we met, Nick liked to drink with his friends, but I was a self-declared straight edge, and this posed a problem. At that point in my life, I was still convinced that Coors Light was a gateway drug, but he wasn't. So that night, when he told me he was headed to a party, I already knew trouble was brewing. I had this overwhelming sense that something terrible was happening, as some of the kids were hanging out and blasting Hey There Delilah on the grassy lawn in the center of the giant stadium. I can't explain it, but I knew he was cheating on me at that exact moment. I could feel it in my bones. I walked the track all night with my phone tightly gripped in my palm, waiting for a text back that would never come. In the morning, I gagged on the empty feeling you get after a night of food poisoning. My belly was churning as if the acids inside were feeding on the lining of my stomach walls. Something was very wrong, and my body was trying desperately to warn me, but it was too late to protect me. I pulled up to my house and saw Nick waiting for me on the curb. Palm sweaty, voice shaking, I climbed out of my car and walked over to him. We didn't hug, we didn't kiss. Both of us knew something terrible had happened, and something worse was coming. 
I sat there waiting for his confession, but it never came. Still, the words that escaped his mouth first pierced like a dagger. Andy, we need to break up. You're no good for me. I realized last night when I was talking to my friends, I've become a different person with you, and I don't like that. You're just too insecure, and you have a lot of baggage. You're a broken girl. I was dumbfounded. I imagine I looked like a pet that had been abandoned during a move. I hadn't showered in 24 hours, and the fresh air had turned my locks into a frizzy mess. I was timid, scared, fragile, and raggedy. And the man I thought was going to be my future husband just labeled me as broken, as if I was glass and my pieces were threatening to slice his toes open or something. This was the same guy who, less than 24 hours prior, had his lips on my lips. He said, I love you, have fun. And now he was proclaiming, you're broken, you're insecure, you're no good. First, I begged like a pet left behind. I cried out, please don't leave me. I can change. I can be better. But Nick didn't come to negotiate. He came to break my heart. You're a broken girl, he proclaimed. Then he left, and I gathered my shattered bits and went inside my house and straight to my room. Nobody had ever broken up with me before. I never let them. I always had to be in control, be in charge, and have the upper hand. I thought Nick was a safe place. It never even occurred to me that he'd dropkick my ass to the curb. I was so unprepared. Two months later, Nick came back when I received a MySpace message late one December night from him, apologizing for his words and asking if he could stop by my house. We talked, he apologized some more, and before I knew it was happening, we were back in each other's lives as if nothing had ever happened. Only this time, I knew the rules. You see, Nick taught me who I was, who I am, would be too much for people. He showed me my dad leaving, my rape trauma, and my personality were all too much. My baggage was too heavy, so I learned to be less. He turned 21, and I moved out of my parents' house into an apartment with Bev. I started playing the occasional game of beer pong with him and his friends, and tried not to show my visible scowl over the watered-down taste of those Blue Mountain brews. I laughed at all the right jokes, and sat in the background, offering timely commentary as they played hours and hours of Call of Duty. I stopped texting him as much, and let him chase me. I didn't get upset when he canceled plan after plan to go bar hopping with friends. Now, I was precisely enough. I was exactly the kind of girl he wanted. A woman who was chill and fun to hang around. Skip the drama, and also don't be so clingy. Heaven forbid you enjoy me that much that you actually want to be around me. Be interested in me just the right amount and at the right time. Preferably when I'm horny and not with my friends or playing video games. Eventually, the rain of divine intervention stopped pouring over us and Nick and I evaporated. This time, I was prepared to let him go. We sat at the bottom of my apartment stairs and he nodded his head in agreement as I insisted we'd simply grown apart. There was a hug, a goodbye, 
And that was that. I sat there a while after he left, still a broken girl. Only now I was much better at hiding it. I may have lost my first love, but I gained the Holy Grail. A Girlfriend's Guide to Not Ever Being Too Much. Written by men for women, the handbook would make it so that nobody ever called me broken again. With my new arsenal, I'd never be too much. I'd be exactly enough, and not a raindrop more. Unpacking Rejection I hate horror movies, but Derek loves them. In the spirit of compromise, we made a blood pact years ago that I'd suffer through exactly two, but no more, a year with him. My vivid imagination, paired with sensitive ears and an easily triggered pulse, make me the target audience for these films. I'm guaranteed to scream, jump, cover my eyes while simultaneously pressing my thumbs over my ears, and carry the nightmare from the screen with me long after the show is over. Watching scenes that make me more afraid of the boogeyman under the bed than my two small children are isn't my idea of a relaxing or enjoyable evening. But again, compromise and love and all that stuff. So twice a year, I put on my big girl panties and say hello to monsters like Freddy Krueger, Jason, Annabelle, and those creepy radioactive creatures from Silent Hill. One of the classic traits of a horror film is the inevitable scene where a character has the opportunity to escape virtually unscathed, but instead chooses the dark, ominous hallway leading to the villain's lair, or decides that running directly toward the chainsaw sounds will totally get the protagonist out safe and unharmed. It's the moment where everyone in the audience starts shouting at the screen, No! Don't go that way, you fool! But of course, the idiot does anyway, because it seems characters in scary movies don't really want to live all that much or have some sick sense of adventure or whatever. Walking through the events of our lives is a lot like being the young heroine of a horror film. Sometimes the answers to our biggest questions reside right in front of our faces. Hello? There's a door right there that leads outside to safety! But... We can't see it because we're too freaking focused on the scene itself. Our memories play like the creepy hallway scene. But instead of taking the obvious way out, we choose the harder path because we're too distracted by the sights, sounds, and smells of our memories to spot that the answer is literally an unlocked door waiting to be opened. My hallway moment was Nick sitting outside of my parents' house proclaiming, You're a broken girl. That's the story, right? It's where the armed maniac stalked the house, and instead of running away, I ran straight to him just months later, open-armed and ready to be slaughtered. It's easy to make Nick the villain because he said something awful to me. Plus, it's my story, so I can spin it any damn way I like to suit my needs. Only, that would make me the director, not the ingenue. And I definitely didn't direct this film as much as I've spent years of my life trying to script this shit. So here's the truth that I've uncovered. The rejection that really slew me wasn't Nick's. It was my own. I allowed that curbside breakup to change the core of who I was. I allowed the opinion of one young man to dim my personality and my light. I mean, who's the real villain here? 
the guy that said some rude words, or the girl who killed her inner self in some insane attempt to be more lovable. Now that's a plot twist M. Night Shyamalan himself probably didn't see coming. It took me 12 years to see that there was an open door to my left the entire time, but I just kept walking toward the slasher soundtrack anyway. Nick didn't ask me to change. He didn't offer an ultimatum or agree to give our relationship another chance if I followed X, Y, and Z. I made the decision to alter myself all on my own, and the price I paid was years of squeezing my birthing hips into the mold I'd hand-carved for myself based on what I learned men liked and didn't like about women. From then on out, any time I felt rejection from a male begin to creep in, I'd reject myself even more to fit in and keep the upper hand. This is a powerful revelation, because even years removed from Nick and his words, I was still allowing the echo of you're a broken girl to reverb through my eardrums and move me like a puppet on a string. Where once I was like an Ashley Simpson song, vulnerable, raw, and honest, now I was living like a techno beat with no lyrics or depth. I was a good time and just real enough to avoid being vapid, working overtime to snuff out the broken bits that made me unlovable. I thought I was removed from this time in my life once I got married because Derek knew the ugly stories of my past, and he still chose me. He'd heard about the Nicks and the Kyles and the daddy issues and still wanted to do life with me. But I was taking on the role of the victim massacred by insensitive words and actions from these young men in my life, without taking any real responsibility for the way I responded to them. I'm about to quote Gandhi here at the risk of being a basic author, because this is important. Nobody can hurt me without my permission. We've all heard different variations of this, but the message remains the same. I am in charge of how I react to the words and actions of other people. Every time I peel back another layer of my past in an attempt to better understand myself, I uncover a sliver of responsibility I've long avoided. This isn't self-blame, it's empowerment. It's saying, okay, these things happened to me, but they don't have to define me like I've been allowing them to do. The actions and words of these people aren't a reliable representation of who I am as a person. I get to decide that. Nobody else does. I want to make myself clear here. We cannot control what others do or say. And sometimes, others say and do things that have devastating, lasting impacts on us. Sometimes trauma brings forth an inability to control our thoughts, feelings, and even motor functions. I've lived with PTSD in my past, and more recently when I found one of my best friends lifeless in her vehicle and listen to the last air escape from her lungs. A story for a later chapter. So I'll neither downplay the weight of severe trauma, nor will I tell you that you've somehow given someone permission to hurt you when you're merely trying to survive. This isn't that, and that isn't this. I'm not a fan of generalization for the sake of trying to make a point more universal. Additionally, I want to remind you that this is what I personally realized within myself. The same may not ring true for you in all areas, and that's okay. You're going to have your own journey, and the things you unpack 
may look different than the ones I have, as may your own discoveries. For me, what I've unearthed from my journey with Nick was my rejection of self. Recognizing this has offered me the chance to forgive myself for denying who I am and to realize that Nick's words were not the law. They were one immature dude's opinion of me at 18 years old. In the words of Benedict Cumberbatch, aka Dr. Strange, which means he knows everything because he can stop and travel through time, if you have an over-preoccupation with perception and trying to please people's expectations, then you can go mad. People are like clouds. No two are the same, and everyone sees different things within them. To some, you may look like a brilliant unicorn, and to others, you'll resemble a swamp monster. Just like clouds, we shift with the atmosphere, but we cannot simply stop being a cloud. To do that would be to disappear from the sky entirely. Sometimes we can sway others into seeing what we want them to see, but it cannot last long-term because, like the clouds, we'll eventually change our form. The paradigm shift happens when we stop trying to will others to see us as we wish we were and begin embracing who we already are, who we're evolving into, and who we were always meant to be. It seems obvious to say you're not going to be everyone's cup of tea, but when it comes to relationships, don't we try really hard to be the flavor we think will receive the most love? When I stopped rejecting myself, I not only gave my own soul freedom, but I also offered my husband a chance to meet the real me. The messy, clumsy, hilarious, beautiful, full of life and emotions and opinions, me. Suddenly, I wasn't the villain or the victim. I was the smart bitch we wish existed all along who sees her way out and takes it. I was the one emerging from the horror, the screams, the perfectly cued music, ready to pen my tale of how I survived rejection, how I survived myself. Thank you so much for listening to the Love Unpacked podcast. I'm your host, Andy Franklin, and you can find me on Instagram at Andy M. Franklin and at love underscore unpacked. And if you're interested in purchasing the book, it is sold on Amazon, IndieBound, and Barnes & Noble. 